All right, uh, our second reading this morning is Acts 4, uh, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of God. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family, and when they had set them in the in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed... Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, which is true, 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 true. We pray this morning that as we gather to study your word, that your Holy Spirit will be present in this room, that your Holy Spirit would be present in our minds and in our hearts so that we might hear and understand and receive and respond to and act upon your true word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter has healed a man, a man who was 40 years old, a man who had been lame since birth. For 40 years, this man had never walked. He was a familiar figure in the temple in Jerusalem. He would go there each day to beg. That's how he made his living. Peter and John come into the temple one day to attend the afternoon prayers, and they meet the lame man who asks them for money, and in Acts 3, 6, we hear Peter say to this man, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I will give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And then Peter reaches down his hand, and he grabs the hand of the man, and he raises him up, and his legs are made strong, and for the first time in his life he's able to walk. Well, as you can imagine, this causes like... A commotion, it causes a stir, this causes a crowd to gather around Peter and John and the healed man, and the healed man is clinging to the two of them, and Peter leads this crowd of people into the temple courts, into Solomon's portico, which is a colonnade along the eastern wall in the temple area, and it was the usual meeting place of the Christians in those early days. It was, in a certain sense, their church. And Peter begins to preach to this crowd who 
is attracted by this miracle. Now we talked last week about Peter's sermon. It's in Acts chapter 3. The occasion of the sermon is the healing of a lame man. But the topic of the sermon is the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And why is who he is so important to get right? Peter doesn't have any money. But he gives to the lame man what he does have. And he does it by saying, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And why should everybody know about him? In his sermon at Solomon's portico, Peter addresses the Jewish worshipers who are assembled there, and he says to them, Jesus was the holy and righteous one. That Jesus was the servant of the God of our fathers. That Jesus has been glorified by God. Peter calls Jesus the author of life. Peter says that even though the people in the temple that day were responsible for killing Jesus, and remember, we're only a couple of months after the crucifixion at this point, that even though the people in the temple that day were responsible for killing Jesus, that God had raised him from the dead, and that Jesus wasn't dead anymore. And Peter says that he and John and others had seen this resurrected Jesus. Peter then says that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Peter reminds his listeners that the prophets foretold that the Messiah would suffer and thus the passion of Jesus was a fulfillment of the Hebrew prophecies. That's all about Jesus. Peter's sermon was about who Jesus is. But knowledge of who Jesus is It's not enough by itself alone. It calls for a response. There is no way to be neutral toward the gospel. No one hears the gospel and says, Oh, that's an interesting story. Thank you very much for sharing that with me. And then does nothing about it. The gospel demands, it requires a response. And Peter's call to action, his altar call there in Solomon's portico, we see in verse 19 of chapter 3 where he says, Repent, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out and that a time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, there have been three steps in this process that we've seen. Number one, there was this eye-popping miracle A miracle that requires the attention of the people. A lame man, a man who's been lame for 40 years, stands up and walks, number one. Number two, Peter says that this miracle has happened because of Jesus. A man who was from God, a man that you killed, but then a man who was then raised from the dead. And then number three, Peter invites this crowd, this crowd who was guilty of the death of Jesus, to repent, to turn back, to have their sins blotted out, and to prepare for a time of refreshing. That's what Peter preaches there in Solomon's portico in Jerusalem about two months after Jesus was crucified. That's all in Acts chapter 3. This week we come to Acts chapter 4, And a group of religious officials come barging in on this meeting there at Solomon's portico. Come barging in on Peter and the crowd. And they put an end to what's happening. 
We read this morning in verses 1 and 2, and as they were speaking to the people, they here uh, being Peter and John, as Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them. Now here we get another clue about the content of the preaching of John and Peter. They were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now let's consider first who we're talking about here. The text mentions the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees. So who are these people? Well, The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees were all officials who worked in the temple. Now keep in mind that the temple is not like our church. The temple was a very large public building with an open courtyard around it. It is the most important building in all of Israel. It is a public building built with public money. There was, of course, no separation of church and state in ancient Israel. The temple was something like the mall in Washington. It belonged to the people. But it was under the control of certain officials who had been appointed to their position either by inheritance or by ancient rules. The priests were responsible for the regular offering of prayers and sacrifices to God in the temple. The Sadducees were responsible for the maintenance of the temple buildings and grounds. You might call them the trustees. These people worked for the whole nation, for the Jewish nation. And they had a responsibility to ensure that things went smoothly inside of the temple. And so in some sense, they're in their rights To barge in on Peter and John if Peter and John had been causing a disturbance in the temple. If Peter and John were upsetting the proper running of the temple, the priests and the Sadducees would have been within their rights to have stepped in and stopped what was going on and arrested them. But that wasn't the problem. There's no report here of chaos or a riot going on. The priests and the Sadducees were not upset that Peter and John were creating a disturbance. What they're upset about is they don't like what Peter and John were teaching. We see it there in verse 2, which says that they were greatly annoyed that Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Three problems in that one sentence. First, they were greatly annoyed that Peter and John were teaching. After all, who were Peter and John? What seminary did they go to? Where are their credentials? They're fishermen, for goodness sakes. What kind of nonsense would these uneducated people be teaching? We can't let that kind of thing go on in the temple, can we? Secondly, they were greatly annoyed that Peter and John were proclaiming Jesus. Jesus is the message. And there's just no way around this. Christianity is about Jesus, about who Jesus is and about what Jesus did. Christianity without Jesus is not Christianity. You can have all of the moral rules, 
all of the character traits that belong to Christian discipleship, but without Jesus, you're just a pagan on your way to hell. Because we do not save ourselves. Because living a Christian life does not save us. Because being good people does not send us to heaven. Christianity is about what Jesus did. Not about what we do. What Jesus did was to redeem us from sin and hell by his own death on the cross. And hearing that greatly annoyed the people who were running the temple. And third, they were greatly annoyed that Peter and John were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now let's be clear what resurrection means. Resurrection is not reincarnation. Resurrection is not being an angel with a harp in heaven. Resurrection is not being remembered by your family after you die. Resurrection is when a human person dies, his body and soul separate, the body goes into the ground and rots, and the soul goes where souls go, and then later the soul returns to the rotten body, and the body gets up out of the ground and is alive again. That's resurrection. The resurrection of the dead is a fundamental Christian doctrine. It has always been since day one. But the Christians didn't invent resurrection. The promise of the resurrection is in the Old Testament. We hear David say, For you will not abandon my soul to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption, or let your Holy One rot. We hear Isaiah say, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is the dew of light and the earth shall give birth to the dead. At the time of Jesus, some Jews believed in the resurrection and some Jews did not. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but the Sadducees did not. And the difference between the two groups is that the Sadducees only accepted the five books, the first five books of the Bible as Scripture, the five books of Moses. And in those five books, there is no mention of the resurrection. The Pharisees, however, adopted all 39 books of the Old Testament, and the promise of the resurrection shows up again and again in those writings and prophets. The Apostle Paul, or Saul, who was a Pharisee before he became a Christian, believed in the resurrection before his conversion. Paul was unmoved by the miracles of Jesus. Paul was unimpressed by the preaching of Jesus. Paul fought the early Christians tooth and nail. But one day, the resurrected Jesus showed up. And he showed himself to Paul, and that's all Paul needed to know. That's, that's what changed his mind. He believed in the resurrection, and then he saw the resurrected man, and Paul knew that Jesus had been crucified and had died, but then he saw him alive again, and it changed everything for Paul. The resurrection changes everything. Nearly 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus, and the church has always proclaimed that Jesus was the first fruit of a coming general resurrection. 
Jesus' resurrection was the down payment, the, the guarantee, the security deposit that assures us that there will be a general resurrection one day. If God can do it for Jesus, then yes, He can do it for me. That's what Paul was thinking when he saw the resurrected Jesus, and it changed his life. Because when you know that a resurrection is coming, you think about death differently. And when you think about death differently, you think about life differently too. The Sadducees, however, rejected the idea of the resurrection. They were annoyed when they heard Peter and John preaching about the resurrection. They were so annoyed that they had them arrested. Peter and John then spend the night in jail, and the next day they're hauled before a council of rulers and elders and scribes, presided over by the high priest. And the question is put to them, by what power... And by what name did you do this? Now surely that's the question that Peter and John were waiting for. It's the the perfect question. It's the important question. By what power and by what name did you do this? And by this we mean heal a lame man and preach about the resurrection. By what power or by what name did you do these things, you people who are nobodies? You people who have no credentials or education, by what name or by what power do you dare step into this temple and do these things? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. That's the name. Now, I'm sure that the council wasn't very pleased with what they heard. But you have to admire Peter for giving a direct answer. By what name? By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Well, that makes us ask the next question. So who was he? What's so important about Jesus of Nazareth? Well, as it turns out, the thing that's important about Jesus of Nazareth is that he was raised from the dead. His resurrection was his certification, that was his credential. Like Peter and John, Jesus wasn't anyone special based on his family or based on his profession. He was just a regular guy, but he was a resurrected guy. And that made all the difference. And who were the people asking this question? Well, awkwardly, they were the ones who had killed him. The identity of Jesus is crucial It is key. It is important for us to have a clear idea in our mind about who Jesus is. And Peter's sermon in Solomon's portico and his speech before the council of rulers were both about the identity of Jesus. Who was this man? And then Peter expands a little bit more Discussing the identity of Jesus, you understand, of course, that what we have in the Scriptures, what we have in the Acts of the Apostles, is the barest outline of what Peter would have said in the courtroom. It's not a transcript. It's just the headlines or the highlights. What we get is all about Jesus. Peter says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, which is a very pretty turn of phrase. Jesus is the stone that was not chosen by the builders. 
by the important people who were running the court where Peter and John stand accused. Jesus is the stone that was rejected by them. But as it turns out, Jesus is the cornerstone, the capstone, the keystone, the most important stone in the house, the stone that holds the whole thing together. You rejected Jesus, Peter says, because you thought he was worthless. But as it turns out, he's the most important thing possible. And then we have the grandest claim of all, or so far, Peter says, and there is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if you understand that sentence, your jaw will drop. If you're not a church person, maybe those words don't make any sense. And if you are a church person, maybe you've heard them so often that they don't even register anymore. So let me ease into this sentence By saying this, these words, salvation and save. Let me read the sentence again. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. These words, salvation and saved, are the grandest words in the Jewish lexicon for God's goodness toward us. For the Jew who is speaking these words, and for the Jews who are listening to these words, there in that courtroom, salvation and saved are all about every good thing that we can have from God. Salvation is everything. Without salvation, we have nothing. Salvation is comprehensive, and salvation takes many forms. The crippled man, who is kind of the case In this situation, the crippled man was saved from his lameness. He was saved from his physical circumstances. He was saved from pain and poverty and the shame of his physical deformation. How sweet that was. At the name of Jesus, the man was saved from his lameness. His physical salvation was in the name of Jesus. Thanks be to God. But salvation doesn't end in the physical realm because who we are doesn't end in the physical realm. There are bigger salvations than physical salvations. There are bigger savings than being saved from being lame or being poor. Because each one of us is both a body and a soul. And if our body is saved but our soul is lost... Well, that's a senseless tragedy. Now, evangelical Christians most often talk about salvation and saving with regard to souls. And saving your soul is certainly important. Jesus said, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You could be the richest man on the planet. But if your soul is lost, what difference does it make? You could be healthy, free of oppression, free of poverty, secure in your neighborhood and in your family, all of which is great. But if your soul is lost, you've lost everything. Because the things of this life will be over in a flash. And then there is endless eternity. And we need a saved soul to navigate that. 
While it is true that God saves both bodies and souls, the value of the soul is inconceivably greater than the value of the body. A saved body without a saved soul is just a mummy. It's a a pretty corpse. It is true that God saves both individuals and nations. Many times in the Old Testament, God rescued or saved his people as a nation. Individuals might have been lost along the way, but the nation was saved. In the exodus from slavery in Egypt, in the settling in the promised land, in the exile in Babylon, over and over again, God saves national Israel. He preserved their identity and their unity. Yes, some individuals were lost along the way, but the nation survived. The nation was saved. Now, as Americans, we're sometimes such individualists that we fail to see that God also works at a corporate and at a national level in his salvation. And what is true of Israel is also true of the church. God saves his church. Individuals might be lost along the way. Congregations might stumble and fall, but the church as a whole will always be saved and preserved. While national or corporate salvation is important to God, in the New Testament particularly, we have evidence that God also saves individuals. We think about how Jesus didn't just preach to crowds and didn't just pray for the nation, but he also went out and called people individually by name to follow him. In the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who has a hundred sheep, but one has gone missing. So he goes out and he searches for that one individual. Maybe that individual is you. God's salvation operates at a physical level, at a spiritual level, it operates at a national level, and it operates at an individual level. Level. This salvation is God giving us all that is best for us. It is life and health and sanity and purpose and freedom and joy and contentment and peace. It is every good thing from the hand of God. But here's the kicker. There is salvation, which is the sum of all of God's blessings. There is salvation in no one else than Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. How can Peter say that? Now we will have to go to other parts of the New Testament to get a full understanding of why it is that there is salvation in no one else than Jesus. But we get the first hint of this big truth from Jesus himself who says in John 14:6 I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me a fuller explanation requires an understanding of the cross because it is in the death of Jesus that our sins are atoned for and the sting of death and the sting of sin are overcome all the stuff that we need to be saved from All the stuff that is wrong in this world and in our lives and in our hearts, all the stuff that we need to be saved from is the consequence of human sin. 
So if we're to be saved, both physically, spiritually, nationally, and individually, it must be in the name of Jesus because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So have you been saved in the name of Jesus? To be saved means that you first must understand that you need a Savior. Not everyone realizes that. Hear what Scripture says. In Romans 3.23 we read, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23 we read, The wages or the consequences of sin is death. And so there is a universal problem. There's a problem that everyone has. Everyone has sinned. There are terrible consequences for these sins. But God also provides a solution. God provides salvation. We read in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. That's how big God's love is for his people. He was willing to undergo death for our sake. But death, of course, could not hold Jesus down. And the resurrection of Jesus is a hint of what lies ahead for us, for those of us who are in Christ by faith. And that brings us to our call to action this morning, our altar call. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God's action on our behalf requires a reaction on our part. God's offer and invitation to salvation requires a response and an acceptance on our part. The work of Christ is done. It's accomplished. It's finished. There's nothing left for him to do. But our work is not over yet. We need to respond to Jesus' call to us. Have you been saved in the name of Jesus? If not yet, then let this be the day of your salvation. We read in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for being with and sustaining Brother John and Brother Peter in the midst of the troubles that they were facing. We thank you that you made them courageous, that you filled them with your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you gave them an understanding of who Christ was, that they got to see the resurrected Jesus. We thank you that they believed in Jesus and called upon his name and were saved. We thank you for their willingness to proclaim that news, even under threat of death, to other people. And we thank you for all of the people who came to be followers of Christ who were saved because of the testimony of Peter and John. And we thank you that we are here this morning because some of those people told some other people who told some other people 
who told some other people, who told some other people, who finally told us. We stand here this morning as the descendants of those people who were converted there in Solomon's portico, who first heard and believed the good news of the gospel that in Christ there is hope and there is salvation, there is resurrection. Lord Jesus, you died for us while we were still sinners. And then you pursued us and you sent us your Holy Spirit so that we might be made awake and aware and responsive to your call. We pray this day that you would continue to be merciful toward us, that you would continue to pursue us and speak your word into our lives. For without your word, we are dead. We pray that by your grace, we might have the faith that we need to cling to the cross of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would cure us of our confidence in our own goodness and that you would instill in us a childlike confidence in the goodness of Jesus. Lord Jesus, you are the Lamb of God and in your death, you take away our sins. May we believe this this day. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen.